Good morning. Uh, welcome to the survivors. I don't know if any of you have actually been to sleep or if you're still uh, at the party last night. I'm quite surprised that we have a reasonably full room. Uh, congratulations on that. It's a, it's a relief. Uh, this is the session, for those of you who have just stumbled blindly into any door that seemed open, this is a session on learning and laughter. Uh, I recommend you stay here because obviously trying to find the door again is probably pushing your luck. You can read the brochure as well as I can. Simon Kerrigan is a, is a proper teacher. I'll introduce them properly when we get there. Riley Price, we know from her CBBC days, and is now doing uh, preschools outreach uh, work. And Sophie Scott actually knows what she's talking about. Uh, so now I will introduce you to what television used to look like. This, in the heady days of VHS frame grabs. Uh, you try telling this to the youth of today, and they won't believe that this is what broadcast used to look like. Back in the late 1990s, I, as a cub producer, made a Key Stage 3 physics series for a national education broadcaster that wasn't the BBC. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, so I did what anybody in that situation would do. I wrote jokes. I wrote a sketch comedy series about physics, which had by sheer blind luck, the fortune to be seen as amusing and entertaining by children, as useful and valid physics by teachers, and as that year's uh, winner in its category at the Royal Television Society Education Awards. So quite understandably, the broadcaster was delighted with this new uh, uh, production talent and this new production company that could do exciting things, and they invited us to submit a whole load of ideas for the following season. Now, I had the same attitude then to development work as I think most of us did, which is that it was enormously tedious and it was like writing about food rather than actually cooking a meal or eating it. I found development work incredibly soul-destroying. So I, I bludgeoned my way through about half a dozen proposals and then I kind of sighed and thought, well, I'll try another three. And I was so soul-destroyed by trying to write all these, these awful ideas that I, I wrote a spoof to keep myself entertained. I wrote the worst possible parody of an education show that I could think of. And you know what's coming next. The, de the department's PA dutifully swept up all ten proposals, sent them to the broadcaster, and that is how I find myself on location making what I believe was the world's first and I hope only Location, costume, drama, sketch, comedy, key stage two, mathematics series <laughs> in ten parts. It, was, it actually looks all right like that, partly because it's high resolution, but also uh, it looks like we actually spent some money. Uh, I, could, I even have a, a happy crew photo. This is happy because by this time we all knew we were making an absolute stinker. This was the second worst show I made in my entire broadcast career. <laughs> And I'd just given up at this point and had spent the entire remaining contingency on location catering, which is why we all look happy. It was awful, sank pretty much without trace, and the final word on it I will give to the series' own commissioning editor. <laughs> it's not what you want to hear at the end of a viewing. It really isn't. He was quite understanding in the end. Uh, here to help me avoid making any of the same mistakes again and hopefully head off anybody else from having such skeletons in their closet, uh, this delightful panel, which I'm delighted to share the stage with. We're going to start with Ronnie Price. We're going to go from preschools and informal 
to secondary schools and formal, and then to the world of, of psychology and cognition. Ronnie Price, uh, we know from her CBBC work, is now running Crafty Science, which does outreach with primary schools. And I'm going to stop there because I'm probably treading on. No, no, what are you going to no, say? That's fine, that's fine. Ronnie. So, yes, I'm Ronnie Price, and I have worked in TV for the last 12 years. I've presented children's shows, I've presented consumer shows, BBC Learn, and so a real big mix of programmes. I now run workshops for preschoolers, um, Crafty Science, and I am also a mum, so I kind of feel like I found my language. Now, for me, this part of it is the practical side. I'm the one that goes on the screen. I'm on the firing line. He may write the lines, but I've got to kind of get them out there and find out if they're funny and really just take the brunt of it. And the same with going into nurseries as well, because it is preschools. I've got to find my language, find out if it is funny for them. So... How do you make it funny on telly? Now, the one thing that we used to find that in kids' TV, we had the benefit of two presenters. And it kind of really helps us as presenters, and it helps the writers as well, that you had kind of good cop, bad cop. Everyone has their role. One person is the funny person, and the other person is a serious person, and they're the ones that can give the information. And we've all seen it happen. But the beauty of it is, if you stick to that, it's going to fail. You've kind of got to mix and match it because there's some things that I would know about and I didn't want to be the stupid one and ask a stupid question. So sometimes I would go, no, I know about this. I don't want to be a girl who's going, oh, I don't know about cars or something. So it was a case of I would be then, you know, the intelligent one and then the other person would be the funny one. But we had our roles and that way kids could listen to us and the funny one would be the person sort of in your classrooms going, no, 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 don't listen to the teacher, don't listen to the teacher, you know, passing notes. And the other one is given the information. And this works across the board, whether it was continuity, saying whether it was a double episode of Tracy Beaker on, which is very important when you're doing continuity, or whether it was out there doing science programmes. I did a science programme last year, or wildlife. The other thing is, if you've got two presenters in kids' TV, you've also got that great thing of chemistry on screen, and the kids want to be part of the gang. And it is always about you guys having a bit of a laugh. So... I've kind of got a little bit of something, and I'll explain why. We'll be eating for 18 hours a day, so this kind of food is, it just fills them up. And scattering around, it means that they're going to spend a lot of time finding their food, which is very, very important. Now, you said they eat for 18 hours a day. <laughs> Sorry, John. How <laughs> have a great digestive system if they've got to constantly be eating? Elephant digestive system, probably at best, is about 45% efficient. So a lot of what they eat, if it doesn't get mashed up by the teeth, will go straight way through. And quite often, inside the poo, you actually see whole bits of fruit. So we might find a whole oh. carrot in elephant. So what happens to that? Do you have to go round and pick it out, Tom? <laughs> Sometimes, but you quite often see elephants, what they'll do is when they have a, a quick poo, they turn round and then they pick it back up again. So you're saying that elephants essentially eat their own poop? No. No, they recycle. Right, okay, well that's something that I definitely won't recommend kids to do at home. <laughs> so the reason I showed that is Raw is a perfect example. We were giving information, but we had the easiest job in the world because the one kids, you can't get away from it, I'm sorry. Kids just love toilet humour. And you saw there, elephants pooing. We're talking about poo. It kind of just makes them feel at ease. You know, they are happy when they are laughing and we are happy when they are laughing because they are taking in the information. And unfortunately, 
a sound effect, an image of a, a, an elephant pooing, kind of, they are drawn in and then they are listening to the rest of the information. Now, of course, there's also slapstick. That also works brilliantly with kids, but it's not about them. That's not how you're giving the information. That's just drawing them in. It's constantly trying to keep their attention. And if you feel like, if they feel like you're just really serious and go, you know, here's the information, they're never going to listen. But make it funny. Give them what they want to hear or want to see. And then it's perfect. The only problem is now I work with three to five-year-olds and I go into nurseries and I go... I work at the Shaw Start Centres around London. And it's very, very different because I can't suddenly show images of poo when I'm talking about science because it, it doesn't always... I can't just start every session and go, let me tell you a joke about an animal pooing. <coughs> so there, humour is still used, but it's there to build trust, get their attention, and then hopefully they will sort of get involved. And when I went into schools, I was like, what can I do? And I thought, shall I get a little puppet? Because, of course, kids TV, you can have a puppet. He can be your silly mum. But I didn't want to do that. I thought, that's not me. So I kind of handed over the power to the kids. And I let them become the funny ones. And with science, that is a really brilliant way to do it. Because we would make something. And I'd say to them, what do you think it would do? Because I couldn't, couldn't suddenly start making them laugh. Because if I was making them laugh... I couldn't give them the information. And if I couldn't give the information, I don't know how many people have worked with 12, three-year-olds on their own, but they start telling you like crazy stories about their dog who ate a biscuit when it went to visit auntie's house. And you're just kind of like, no, we're not talking about that. And you're <laughs> constantly trying to draw them back in and they will go wild. So I handed over the humour to them and let them make their own observations about science experiments. And so they would say, what if we were to try this? And that was absolutely brilliant. It works really, really well. Give the kids the control. They will make you laugh, even though it's not always that funny. You laugh along, everyone joins in, and then you can move it on to the information you're trying to give them. So for me, that is kind of the best thing, because when kids make the observations, they get involved, they want to learn, and you follow that path with them. They ask the questions, and everybody is involved and if they're in control, and this works from three-year-olds, I found, to 12-year-olds. If they're in control of the information, they really will, where am I clicking, you know, learn. And that's what I found. So my experience is, telly, great, someone writes for you, have your roles. But in a classroom, it's very different. You have to be the person who gives that information and is warm and is engaging and really makes them want to learn. And the only way I found to do it, from my experience, is let the children have control. Oh, that sounded a bit, bit, bit heavy, didn't it? But that's kind of what works for me. Thank you. We'll take questions at the end, I think. I think we'll go through the presentations um, first. So we'll go straight into Simon Kerrigan, who is a lead practitioner and assistant head of science and teacher training coordinator at Netherthorpe School, not very far from here. All of those words mean something if you're in the formal education world and mean nothing to those of us in the media, unless we have children of the right age. So, <laughs> Simon's a proper teacher, <laughs> is the way I would interpret it. Hi, hello. Yes, my name's Simon. Um, I'm, I suppose, going to be talking about this uh, laughter and learning from a, a secondary school point of view. Uh, I've been teaching 15 years. Like uh, I am a lead practitioner and um, a lot of my role is in training new teachers and as part of that role uh, as training new teachers I often hear the, um, the saying 
to student teachers, never smile till Christmas. Um, now, obviously, this, <laughs> this, is, this is meant as an over-exaggeration. Um, but some student teachers will take this literally. Some student teachers will think that if they uh, smile or, or bring humour into their lessons before the end of the first term, that that's somehow going to lead to um, discipline problems in the classroom and that it'll affect the children's learning in a, in a bad way. But I think the opposite. I think that actually, if you don't laugh to Christmas, if you, if you don't um, uh, bring humour into your lessons, you're much more likely to have bored students by Christmas, um, classes who are, who are fed up, who don't really like your subject and don't look forward to coming to, to your lessons, and that's actually going to be a lot more likely to, uh, to generate discipline problems in the classroom. We try to help student teachers to, uh, to bring humour into their lessons and to, to use laughter as a, uh, a means of helping their children learn and helping them uh, achieve their educational goals. And I'd much rather have a, a lesson where the students are engaged, involved, enjoy the lessons, rather than bored students who are just scared of you. Um, and I would like to start just with a quick question. Um, take yourself back to your own childhood, back to your own school days. Just raise your hand if your favourite teacher, when you were at school, was somebody who could make learning fun and uh, brought laughter into learning. Ah, quite a few people. <laughs> I'm definitely for me as well. My favourite teacher at school was a, a guy called a physics teacher called Mr. Marsh. Um, he had a great kind of self-deprecating sense of humour. He was always willing to have a laugh. Never took himself too seriously. Um, he had, I think, what's called a roticism, so he didn't pronounce his R's. Um, and he really kind of played upon this. He really uh, emphasised this when he was talking about physical uh, physics terms. So uh, accelerating twollies really stuck in my mind. Um, uh, <laughs> reverberation and uh, uh, resonant frequencies. These kind of things were just, when it came to exams, you just remembered the way that he taught it and in the, the, the funny way that he, he went about his, his uh, teaching life. And he seemed to really enjoy teaching. So I kind of, I try to use a lot of what I learned, not the pronunciations as such, but the, the <laughs> not taking myself too seriously in lessons and just having a laugh with the kids. And I think, really, that helps them learn. Um, now, I couldn't really talk about laughter and learning without trying to start with a bit of a joke. So, how do you turn a duck into a soul singer? Now, if you've not heard this before, then you would probably at least be uh, mildly curious as to the answer of, of this question. Uh, and whenever you're given a, a joke or a puzzle or a, a, I don't know, a riddle or something like that, you will eagerly await the answer, as you possibly are now. Um, so, obviously, I would have your attention, and I keep that attention until I give you the punchline, and at which point you'd probably groan or uh, smile politely or maybe even sympathetically um, or maybe even laugh. Um, so, anybody know, <laughs> how do you turn a duck into a soul singer? Put it in a microwave. Excellent. And uh, let's build with us. Superb. Oh. So, if you kind of think about what happened while you while you were processing that question, um, you maybe thought of possible answers. So, as you're thinking of possible answers, you're making predictions as to what the answer to that question could be, which is a high-level thinking skill which we we really value in education. You may have had loads of different answers and picked from those range of answers. That's decision-making. Uh, you might have remembered a previous telling of this joke. In that case, it's, it's recall. 
These are all um, skills, in, especially in science, that we value. Uh, Decision-making, uh, prediction. We like students to make hy uh, form hypotheses and predict. Use previous experiments and recall from previous experiments in order to inform future experiments. So I think these are all skills which are useful, which can be brought across by using laughter in learning. Um, so how does laughter affect learning? Now, I think no matter how high that joke scores on your laughometer... I think you will agree that it does attract students' attention. Um, it helps bring the attention to you, or bring the attention even to the, the, the topic of the lesson. So if, if it's used um, contextually, so for, for, the, for the subject material that you're covering, then they're already hooked into the lesson. I think also it, it gets them to, um, to ask questions. Uh, I use, uh, it also helps them to break the ice I use something called a, a register topic at the beginning of lessons where we, we have a topic of the day and uh, they have to answer their, nest, their name in the register to that particular question. So it could just be, which superhero's power would you take? Or I think last week in my psychology group we had um, use a particular psychological theory to treat Luis Suarez as biting addiction. <laughs> Um, and it gets them into the lesson. We were, we were looking at applications of psychology and it was to try and get them into the lesson. And once they've answered a question early on, they're a lot more willing and relaxed and they're more likely to get involved in the lesson. They're, they're more likely to, to make, uh, I don't know, make mistakes, ask questions that they think might be an obvious question. They've already got involved, they've already spoken, so they're more likely to do that later on. And I think they get engaged in education a lot more and they're willing to get out of their comfort zone a lot more. I think one other thing, I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it helps control behaviour. A lot of the students, a lot of the, the, the worst discipline problems that we have in classrooms are from students who uh, desire, uh, desire attention. They want attention at any available opportunity. So if you give them that attention in a funny way, even like uh, make them the, the centre of the, the joke, let them tell the joke at the beginning, register topics, then they get the attention, then they're more willing to participate. And actually, I think it helps them relate to the teacher, helps them to relate to each other as a group. Um, once students share a joke, they make a connection, and they're more likely to work together as a team. Also, it helps to humanise the teacher, I think. If you're willing to have a laugh with them, they think you actually are a human rather than just someone who comes out of the cupboard at the end of the day. Um, all of these things, I think, really work to, to make a good atmosphere within, within lessons. So using humour can help, help generate the positive atmosphere that you want in order to get the best out of the children's education. So really, I'm going to look at how, um, where there's a place for children's comedy entertainment in the classroom. Now, you probably know my answer to this. I do think there definitely is a place, but I would say um, yes, but with reservations. I think that the... the uh, the purpose should be to facilitate the children's learning, not just to make them laugh, not just to entertain the students. Um, I've got a couple of clips here just to, to kind of illustrate that point. So I think the, the, the comedy should be well-planned, should be appropriate, and should be contextual. The first clip that I'm going to show is um, uh, one clip that I use when I'm teaching alkali metals. Uh, we can use the first three alkali metals in the classroom and do demonstrations of those. This shows um, the next couple of alkali metals because they always want to know. Once they've seen the reactivity series of group one metals with water, they can see that um, 
uh, the, the, the reactions get a lot more violent as you move down group one. They always want to know what happens to rubidium, what happens to cesium. So this, I think, is a good use of... They are, if you like, the king and queen of alkali metals. Mix these babies with water, stand well back, and watch the mayhem. And that's just what we're going to do. Mr Tickle, bring on the rubidium. Here it is. Is that it? Well, it might not look like much, Richard, but it's a highly reactive metal. It's sealed in this glass tube under argon atmosphere conditions, just for safety. Right, so what's going to happen when you drop that in the water? Well, imagine, if you will, letting off a hand grenade in a bathtub. Right, I'm off. Have that. OK. Good luck. Okay, Tickle, drop the rubidium in the water. Stand back, everybody, this one's going to be bad. Uh, two grams of rubidium will only react when our specially designed vial dissolves in the water, which gives John a few crucial seconds to get into our safety zone. Cesium, the emperor of alkali metals, particularly nasty, could go off at any time. And that's it. Oh, yes. Brilliant. I like it already. Now, what's that going to do when it hits the water? Imagine a depth charge in a bathtub. Fair enough, mate. I'll leave you to it. Good luck. Thank you. OK, John, go for it. Warning, warning, warning. Extreme danger. Clear the area. As our cesium sinks in the water, the rapid generation of hydrogen gas should produce quite an explosion. And it does. Okay, so what I like about that is it's, it's content related, it's appropriate for the lesson, it leads on from what you've done, so it kind of helps further students' understanding of a particular topic. It's not just comedy for comedy's sake, it's, it's actually got a purpose in the lesson. Um, the other clip, obviously from the same programme, I think, is more of an inappropriate use of comedy. Funny, but not really context related. We're attaching electric cables to a well-loved, well-paid British celebrity. But will he still be able to do his glamorous day job whilst being electrocuted by our brainiac? This week, it's Eric Knowles of the Antiques Roadshow. We've laid out a collection of objets d'art for him to value whilst our brainiac electrocutes him. OK, Eric? Do your thing. Well, we've got a fascinating selection of antiques, and um, I'm, I'm amazed by that finding a pig like this. These pig mini money boxes. Like an Art Deco nightlight, the, the likes of which I've not seen since I was in the freak museum in, in New York. I mean, Jurassic is very, uh, it's a protected species. <laughs> is it Gandalf? I think it could well be an early Chinese, Chinese, Chinese example. It's got the mark for the Ming Emperor. <laughs> and as for the cat, well, it's remarkable. This one's got his right paw lifted. That is a, a, a exceptionally rare cat. It's Japanese. Japanese. Okay, so great and really funny, and probably will actually draw the children to watching science programmes. So great, but not something that we would use in a, a lesson because not content related, 
doesn't really um, introduce them to electricity and why, um, why he's getting electric shocks. Um, can actually, in a lesson, distract, education, distract the attention away from what we're actually trying to do. Um, so obviously, I, I do think that humour and uh, comedy uh, entertainment does have a place in the classroom, but I think it does have some dangers. I think if uh, it's used at the wrong moment, it can destroy the mood which that type of video would destroy the mood in a classroom. It can distract attention from the topic that you're trying to cover at the time. Um, if laughter gets out of hand and it's your, your only purpose of the lesson to, to make people laugh, then I think it could turn your class into a little bit of a, a circus. Um, obviously, if it ridicules, then it could lead, learn to, lead to hurt feelings, and um, we don't really want that. We want the group to work together. Um, so obviously, if, if it's used appropriately, it can be a, a, a joy and it can really help further education. Uh, I would like to just kind of finish with, by going back to the previous question that I asked. Uh, those of you who said that your favourite teacher was a teacher who made you laugh, out of you, who, who actually chose to pursue that teacher's lessons or that teacher's subjects um, further when you had the choice? Oh, so less people. I definitely did choose to pursue my, my teacher's subject further. And that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment. Um, so actually, it's, it's led to a career path. And so if that teacher, if Mr. Marsh hadn't inspired me in the way that he had, if he'd not um, used laughter in learning, and for a few of you, if, if your teachers hadn't inspired you in the way that they did, then you may not be here now. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So what they've done is they've not just made you laugh, they've inspired you. They've uh, influenced your life for the better. And I think that ultimately that's what laughter can do. It can, it can inspire, it can educate, and it can make children actually like learning. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Simon. Professor Sophie Scott is the Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow, University College London, uh, in the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. Sophie, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have to say, it's very it's important there. that you understand that I'm an enormously serious scientist. There's just, there's not, <laughs> it's all hysterical. Um, so I just want to talk briefly about the science of laughter and what laughter is, because I think what, it's a very interesting human behaviour, and it's one that we're very often almost completely wrong about when we think about it. There's a very nice example here from W.H. Auden saying, amongst those whom I like or admire, I can find no common denominator, but amongst those whom I love, I can. All of them make me laugh. And to cut a long story short, what I'm basically going to argue is Auden had this almost exactly the wrong way round. It's not sort of... <laughs> <laughs> love, um, it's not that people are sort of making us laugh and that makes us love them. We, we laugh because we love them. We laugh because we like them. When we laugh with people, we're showing people that we like them, that we love them, that we agree with them, that we are part of the same group as them. It's an affiliative social behaviour. Um, and I got interested in laughter a few years ago because I was interested in, you know, I work on human vocalisations and how we make noises and how we speak and how our brains deal with that. And laughter quite early on started to look quite different from a lot of the other sounds that we were using. So, for example, uh, we did some field work out in Namibia and we found working with the Himba, who are completely unwesternised and don't sort of share any of our culture, they're not contaminated by our culture. The only positive expression of emotion, so negative emotions like fear, anger, disgust, which have been shown to be cross-cultural, um, from other studies, We've, we replicated that from the voice. The only positive emotion, which was recognised by the English and the Himba, and the Himba from the English, was laughter. 
So in the himba are expressing a triumphant emotion. They make a kind of I, 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 I sound, which English people don't recognise as being triumphant. If you can remember feeling triumphant so soon after the World Cup. But um, English people will typically make a kind of woohoo noise and the himba don't recognise that. So it's not true for all emotions and it is for laughter. It's a cross-culturally recognised emotion. It's a universal human emotion. We all do it. And when you look at this in a bit more detail, uh, you should realise that I would expect all human beings to laugh because, in fact, we aren't the only animals that laugh. You find laughter in other mammals. It's been shown in chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans. It's very recognisable. If you tickle a chimpanzee, it even makes a a sound that we hear, like laughter. But interestingly, of course, because those are apes and we're apes, it's also the case that other mammals, where people have looked for it, also laugh. So work from Ian Panksepp in the US, who's doing stuff with rats, he uh, was looking at distress vocalisations in rats. And to do this, because rats are very small, and very high, they make very high-pitched sounds we can't normally hear, they have to reduce the sounds that the rats make in pitch so humans can hear it, and they're doing this all the time. And they noticed when they did this that the rats made a completely different sound when they were playing with each other. And they thought, well, is this laughter? So they're good scientists. They put on their little gloves and they started tickling the rats, <laughs> at which point they noticed the rats made exactly the same sounds. And that could still be the rat going, stop it, get off. Ow! Um, so they got, they got rats used to being tickled and they just put their hands into the cage without tickling the rats. And the rat would make the noise as it sort of curls around your hand trying to get a tickle out of you. And if the same scientist tickles the same rat every day, the rat will make the sound when it sees you coming into the lab in the morning, which sounds like most, most scientists don't get that kind of feedback. <laughs> um, and the really interesting thing is whether you're a chimpanzee or a human or a rat, laughter first emerges in interactions between parents and babies, primarily tickling. And that's the same for rats and chimps and us. And in fact, possibly the only reason why we're ticklish is, I suspect, a reason to get laughter going. You can't tickle yourself. It has to happen in interaction. So from its outset, laughter is in fact an interactive behaviour. It's something that you're shooing, you're sharing with somebody else. And actually what we're doing when we laugh with babies, when we're tickling them, is we make the baby laugh and then we laugh back. Babies won't catch a laugh from us. They have to learn to do this. And you're actually training up the laughter. So we know from the rat literature that rats who laugh, who are tickled a lot when they're babies, are the rats who will laugh more when they're tickled as adults. It's a behaviour you can prime. We actually learn to do this. And then it changes in its use as we get older and it becomes richer and more complex. So it's very, very strongly associated with play. All mammals play. There are a few signs to play, which can be a bit like pornography. It's pretty hard to define play. Uh, you kind of know it when you see it sort of thing. You get these, these play faces. There's this, so you've got this kind of loose, open, happy smile. It's very hard to take photographs of adults doing it. I'd just like to point out my brother, that chimp. I think we can all see what's going on there. It's, it's a very unthreatening face. There's no tension in it. And basically what you're saying in play, you're doing the, laugh, the, the, the play face to say, I mean you no harm. This is a game. No one's going to get hurt here. When there's a, a laughter so, sorry, play is so important to dogs, they have this sign as well. When dogs do this, that means everything after this is a game. Okay, we're playing. So it's an incredibly important behaviour. And all mammals do it when they're infants. And they have this prolonged infancy mammals. And they seem to be you're learning a great deal about what you're doing, going to do as an adult when you're playing. So it's really, really important. The signs to play are important. And when there's a noise associated with this face, it's laughter. And laughter can be seen basically as an invitation to play. Come on, we're all, we're all okay here. This is a game. No, no one's hurting anybody. 
The really striking thing about laughter when you get to adults, and this is really nice work from Robert Provon in the US, is that almost everything we think about laughter by the time we're adults is wrong. We kind of recognise the importance of it, but we don't think about it in a way that actually reflects how we use it. So if you're Robert Provan fan, if you ask people what makes you laugh, when do you laugh, they'll talk about jokes and they'll talk about humour. If you look at when people laugh, they laugh when they're talking with their friends. It's a social behaviour. So you're 30 times more likely to laugh if you're with somebody else than if you're on your own. And you'll laugh more if you like those people or if you want them to like you. So it's moderated by familiar, even familiarity. You'll laugh more with people you know. Um, interestingly, within these conversations, people vastly underestimate how often they laugh. So people will really not often, if you ask them, they won't repeat, report back, they laugh very much. But in fact, even from really boring experimental situations, people laugh about seven times per ten minutes of conversation, which is quite a high. We don't scream that often or go, Ugh. you know, it's, for a non-verbal vocalisation, we're actually doing it all the time. And if you look within those conversations, people still aren't laughing at jokes. People are laughing at statements like, I need to catch my bus, or I will have another cup of coffee. And in fact, at any one time within a conversation, the person who laughs most is the person who is speaking. It's part of your communicative act. It's what you're doing, again, to show people in the middle of human speech, which no other animal can do. We drop into old mammal behaviour to show each other that we like each other, that we love each other, that we agree with each other, that we understand each other. We're part of the same group. Um, interestingly, then this is just very brief, you get it moderated by the amount of information you have. So you talk for longer, you're happier afterwards, and you laugh more during a face-to-face conversation, either in real life or over Skype or FaceTime, and if you look at telephone conversations, it drops off. Shorter conversations, less laughter, less happy. Um, so as soon as you take away the face, there's less laughter. And then text-based interactions, it drops off again. And this is, I think, just speaks to its social importance. The more social information you have about people, the more you will laugh. If you look at the brain, you can see a very interesting reaction, which is that when people hear laughter, when they're having their brain scanned, and I can guarantee you this is not a very funny thing to happen, you can actually see people getting ready to join in. Laughter is contagious, and you can see this hallmark of contagion in the brain. When you hear people laughing, as opposed to hearing people screaming or going, ugh, you can actually see the brain preparing to join in. So, and this is interesting, you get the same thing with yawning, which is also an affiliative behaviour. You'll catch a yawn off someone you know more than someone you don't know. And it has so the same kind of contagion. Um, we got interested in unpacking this in a bit more detail. I won't go into this in too much more detail. But just last thing, we got interested in um, real versus posed laughter. Because there, there is a, a lot of that laughter that's going on in conversation isn't people who are helpless with laughter. And I'm sure you can all think of instances... When you laugh, I think the last time I left, laughed till I was absolutely, I was helpless beside myself. I was reading Viz a few weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it's a very good thing about uh, clown sex lines. Um, but that, that's very different laughter from laughter that you're kind of polite, you know, you're sort of doing in conversation when you're choosing to do this. And there's a literature on this from the face. So which of these two faces looks nicer? Which of these smiles looks like the nicer smile, the left or the right? If you look really carefully, and it's almost impossible to see from the photos, the, the mouths are the same. If I block out the eyes, it's easier to see. Okay? So it's actually the eyes that are different. And the argument is in a genuine smile, you get more action around the eyes than you do in a posed smile. So there you can sort of see it looks a lot more neutral around the eyes, except when you've got the whole face, you can't see that anymore. Don't know if I believe this entirely. I've seen America's Next Top Model, and I know that Tara, Bank, Tara Banks can do like 21 different smizes. So, uh, you know, I don't completely know. That's absolutely... But suggest that you might find this different. So we just did whatever it took to make people laugh and recorded examples of genuine helpless laughter and the same people doing sort of posed laughter. Interestingly, 
people, children, are not good at telling the two apart. Children are not great at telling real from posed laughter apart. But actually, people get better and better at recognising the real laughter into their early 30s. It's not something that's in place by the time you hit puberty. It's not in place by the time that you, your brain is fully developed at the end of your teens. So you're actually learning about laughter throughout your whole early life. If you look at the contagion, a different question, how much does this make you want to laugh? You'll see what you might expect. Children find all the laughter a lot more contagious. And that drops off with age. Uh, interestingly, there is a bump in between 50 and 40 and 50. We don't know that's because the menopause is hilarious or something at middle age onset is hilarious. <laughs> something funny is happening there. But there is, a, for everybody, the, the pose laughter is much less contagious, except for children. Remember, they're not noticing the difference. So we took that back into the brain scanner and we found that even if you don't tell people what's going on, you do, your brain hears and processes real laughter differently from pose laughter. And when you hear pose laughter, basically you're trying to work out what people are thinking. You're trying to work out why they're laughing. Interestingly, that contagion effect I showed you before is the same. When you hear laughter, full stop, whether it's real or post, you get ready to join in. But interestingly, we did a test with people after the brain scan, and we got a measure of how good they were at telling real from post laughter. We actually found the more any one person gets ready to join in with laughter when they hear it, the better they are at understanding it. So it's not just contagion. Joining in with laughter is helping you understand why that person's laughing. So there's a social um, intelligence to this behaviour as well. So then the last thing that is really interesting about laughter, it's been described as, sorry, it's all gone a bit funny there, as uh, the shortest distance between two people. And I really like that because it's kind of getting that intimacy with laughter. But there's work coming out of the US looking at couples, but I see no reason to believe this wouldn't be different from any other kind of interaction. Couples who are in a stressful situation and they give people stressful things to talk about, you, who use laughter and humour immediately to make each immediately feel better. You can see them becoming less stressed. And over a longer time scale are the couples who stay together for longer and report higher levels of relationship satisfaction. Now, if we assume longevity is some kind of index of a good relationship, it suggests that something we do with the people we love and the people we like is we actually use laughter to modulate our mood. It's a phenomenally good way of regulating emotions, which I think goes back to a lot of what's been said in the talks before. So I'll stop there. I think laughter is much more important than we've been giving it credit for. I think we actually, all the time, using laughter as a way of closing the distances between us and of making ourselves feel better. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sophie. Uh, I think as ever, when as media producers we come up against formal education, uh, it becomes quite a challenge from our perspective. So I've got a bunch of questions which are probably more directed at you than the panel. So let's hope that we don't have to rely on those. Um, we've got a good few minutes for questions. We've got a couple of roving microphones. If you can indicate if you'd like to ask a question of the panel. Take a microphone down here, please. Please wait for the mic. Anybody else? And we'll get the microphone to you next at the back. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm a teaching assistant in a local primary school in Sheffield. And this is more at the teaching and humour in schools. And it's a bit about um, gender, really. Um, watching the video about with Richard Hammond in it, when he's blowing stuff up, for want of a better phrase, <laughs> I've found that in the classroom, with science, especially boys find that amazing. You know, like, oh, my God, he's blowing an hole in that. And then they crack out laughing. And then I notice that some of the girls are just, mm, that's, that's not particularly funny. Have you noticed a difference in different subjects 
um, between girls and boys at what they laugh at? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, most of my uh, teaching is science, so a lot of it you, you are blowing things up and, and experiments and things. The boys do get into that a lot, that a lot more. Um, I do think that the girls get into it. I think that if you, um, if you involve the girls a bit more, especially in kind of dem- demonstrations, so if you're doing the Group 1 medals and getting them to, to help out with things like that, then they do tend to kind of uh, laugh at it and, and engage with it as well. Um, but yeah, I do think boys. I know, Ronnie, you... Um, yeah, I did a show last year for girls in science called Beneath the Lab Coat, and it was about getting girls interested in science. It was kind of finding the way that they could relate to it. So maybe it wasn't blowing things up, but we actually met women who were young women who were rocket engineers. We met women who were makeup artists and kind of finding out what metals were used and how they need to have that information. So you know, if Richard Hammond was saying, this is in your blusher or in your eyeshadow, I'm blowing it up. You know, girls were going, oh. And it was really about getting girls interested in science because, unfortunately, I mean, I have boys and they love seeing things being blown up. And I have had to learn to enjoy that. Because, <laughs> I get, and, and funnily, when you give in, and, you know, maybe as I've got older, when you give in to that, it is actually quite funny. But, you know, you sort of do that, oh, it's not funny now because I am interested and looking good. So it's just trying to find a way of connecting it to them. Because it is actually quite funny when we see it. We just pretend it's not as we get older. Yeah. I'm going to lob in there, actually. There, there is um, uh, a piece of work from the University of Hull, from the chemistry department there, who've been doing uh, a lot of classic chemistry stinks and bangs lectures as part of their outreach. And they're a bit nervous about sharing this too widely because their sample size isn't great and their methodology wasn't great. But they've stopped doing those sorts of lectures because they found that outcomes over five to ten years were very strongly gender skewed and what they've concluded is that blowing stuff up doesn't it appeals disproportionately to boys and puts girls off mm. they've they've changed the tone of their outreach and i think yeah there are other issues with that brainiac clip which uh, happens to be faked um, <laughs> it, uh, ch- um there was an episode through Ben Goldacre's column in The Guardian a few years ago where the story came out in full over a period of uh, involving Sky's lawyers at one point. Um, yeah, it's fake. It's a piece of plastic explosive in a bathtub. If you drop a lump of cesium in, nothing happens, really. It fizzes a bit, that's it. Uh, so there are issues there about responsibility. And whose responsibility is it in this connection between media and formal education to verify the information that's presented? OK, we had a question further back. Hi, uh, Tom Kenyon. I was really interested in the the slide about um, face-to-face interactions being more likely to make you laugh than than other media, and I wondered if there were studies about different media and how they make you laugh. Is television better at making people laugh than games or uh, radio? Or Um, I I don't know for sure. One thing the very big proviso has to be there are hardly any proper studies on laughter. If I go into PubMed, which is a basic science sort of database for papers, and I put in expression, emotion, expression, fear, I get over a thousand papers. And if I put in emotion, expression, laughter, I get forty, and about fifteen of those are by me. You know, it's just not that's ever. So it's just not enough. There just isn't enough. People haven't been asking the right questions. I think. So my suspicion would be that things like um, television might be more likely to, because you just get that sort of, you're getting more social information. I think the sort of thing Rani was talking about, about why people like seeing double acts, I think is also, 
people like that because you're sort of getting that there's extra social information. It's just one, not one person transmitting, but you get that dynamic. And you feel, and one of the things we're actually trying to look at is in the context of stand-up comedy, but it would apply to broadcasting as well, how much of what people do when they are actually standing on the stage with the aim of making people laugh is basically a weird version of a conversation where there's only one person talking. Because there's a lot of craft to comedy and timing that's actually very like what happens in conversation. So that's something else we're actually trying to look at to see you know, how much of what we would think is to be like the art of comedy actually is basic psychology of how, you, how we actually talk to each other. So a question here and a question down the front as well, please. Um, I, I was wondering, um, when you talk about laughter, are you also talking about a sense of humour? I mean, you know, what, what interests me is um, whether a sense of humour is actually inherited. Um, I, I married, he's, he's died now, um, somebody who is Jewish, and they they seem to have a real culture of, of humour. Uh, you know, there were Jewish jokes, and it, it seemed to be a very important part of their, their life to, be, um, to have this sort of uh, Jewish humour sort of thing. And, and now i am I'm, um, got a partner who's got an incredible sense of humour, always laughing, always finding ways to um, diffuse situations with humour. And... Um, and I think, I wish I could be like that. And, and, but can I learn it, or can people learn it, or is it just, just inherited, you know? I think you, I think you need to think about the two as being different but strongly associated. So look, we've been laughing. Laughter is older than us. Laughter has been around probably since there's been mammals. We haven't looked at it enough. My suspicion is wherever you actually look at mammals, particularly babies, you'll, fi- you'll find laughter. It's an important social part of what happens in mammals. In humans, probably as long as we've been talking to each other, as long as we've had language, and language came late to us, we've been, as evidence as far as we can see, is we've also been making jokes. Humour exists as long as there's any kind of record of yes, human written language. Yes, but having a sense no, of No, humor. it's not. So I think they're different things. But very often, we, because remember, we laugh most when we're with people we like. And actually, we'll say, oh, X, Y, Z, he's got a fantastic sense of humour. I absolutely love him. One, women will say, I fancy him because he's got a great sense yes. of humour. What you mean is, I fancy him and I laugh when I'm round him because I fancy him and I like him. It's actually, we, we attribute it to people. We actually, we put it on, so it, and, and our humour exists. And I'm not saying humour doesn't exist and laughter is definitely an important part of how we show a reaction to that. But it's, 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 it's a bit of what we do with laughter. I, Considering I something to have a sense of humour, I think it's actually got much more to do with saying that you're saying you, know, you, you like them and you love them and you're giving them your laughter. That's why people say it in Lonely Hearts. They'll say, I've got a great sense of humour. What you're saying is, I'll give you laughter. Well, I didn't fancy my partner at all. But he had... <laughs> but you're going about but, this but, but the wrong was, way around. I, <laughs> I was won over by his sense of humour. But that's, just... that's him winning you over with his personality. That's the thing. So, that's, so we, one of the interesting things about laughter is we, we take our laughter as a sign of uh, something we attribute to other people, but actually it's telling you how you feel about them. And the exact same is true of people that seem to laugh inappropriately. Who knows somebody who laughs inappropriately? I've got a female relative who's always like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you laugh so inappropriately. And I've realised, because I got really psychotic about laughter, it's not her. It's when she laughs, I don't join in. I'm like, oh, we don't have that kind of relationship. Yeah. And I interpret that as her laughing inappropriately, but it actually it's me going, I don't like you. 
well, you know, I, and I will I, not I, give you my laughter. <laughs> it's, so, but again, I, I impose it on her. I project it onto her, but it's me. It's my feelings that actually the laughter's telling me about. But I'm still very interested in the link between laughter and having a sense of humour, but obviously that's not your area. Well, no, no, I'm saying it is my area, but it's actually to do, it's, it's what it's telling you about what you think about them. That's what I'm saying to you. What we call a sense of humour is basically, if anybody can tell me of someone who's got a good sense of humour who you also happen to loathe, uh, it will be disprove my theory, but I've never encountered anybody who experiences that. But isn't it sort of reverse as well? Maybe he has a great sense of humour and is always making you laugh because he really likes you. Yeah. And that's why you're attracted to him, because he is doing everything he can to make you laugh. So when you first yeah. met him, you didn't fancy him, but he really fancied you. That's yeah. what you've got to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> OK, there's a question uh, second in the front. And do I have another? Yes, the microphone can go there, please. Thank you. Um, thanks very much. Really, really interesting um, discussion. And I just want us... It's connected, really. It's um, Obviously, you're, you're, the way that you're talking about um, humour, making these kind of connections between people, and you're talking about that in the classroom. Um, I'm kind of interested in the idea of, you know, where children are able to take risks and, and how that impacts on their learning. And it feels like what you're sort of saying is that laughter brings children closer to the teacher. They're co-learning rather than... It changes the relationship, and therefore, would you say that they're more able to take risks? And and I and I, if I can also sneak another bit of that in, which is, you talked about children learning to to laugh. So, is there a distinct humour of you know? Do, do, do children have different kinds of? Can we characterise children's humour in particular ways? I suppose uh, do they laugh at different? I know we've talked about poo, but there are there are these sort of quite. Um, you know, like the whole horrible history of death and mm. guns and, you know, all of, is that, a, you know, distinct because they've, that's the stage that they're at? I think, um, the, 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 I will give a big warning here, the psychology of humour tends to be awful, right. right? It's really not very good stuff, but what evidence there is seems to be that it is extremely hard to come up with general rules about humour. It's very, very context-dependent. And I think with children, the thing is they want to laugh. They recognise the importance of it. They want to join in with laughter. So they'll, they'll find... You know, kids will tell a joke and then tell a joke and tell the joke and don't understand why you're still not laughing. Why don't, you know, because they they're doing it to get the laughter. They know the importance of the laughter. So I think they will basically take whatever you give them. Things like poo are easy because they're widely understood, commonly encountered, <laughs> and you know it's. But it, I, I don't think it would necessarily make it a, a, con, a context-free thing. So I would imagine you could go to other parts of the world where, you know, poo is probably a lot less hilarious if you're living <laughs> surrounded by it. It's not next to a railway track, so maybe you laugh at other things. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'd have yeah, to I, I, I do children. think that. Um, uh, Laughing in the in the lesson does help bring groups together, and I've I've noticed that actually different groups have like kind of a, a group sense of humour. There tends to be uh, because they're they're using it to connect with each other. They tend to laugh at the same things, but not the same things that other groups will laugh at. They'll um, have a particular sense of humour for the group, which I think is a, bit, a little bit strange. But yeah, um, one uh, in in one lesson there's so a long time ago when Amarillo was was uh, the top of the charts. And I was saying about how we were hearing it all the time and then I was getting sick of the song. And the group, whilst I was asking a question, they'd all asked, uh, written down on their whiteboards. They had little whiteboards they were holding up. They'd written the first line of Amarillo and they went down the front row <laughs> holding their boards up. And it was just that group to a T. It was just their sense of humour. And uh, different groups do different things. But yeah, I do think it helps them work. Uh, possibly, yeah, it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> There's a question at the back and then down to the front. Please. Hi, this is a question for Simon. Yes. Um, I'm a writer in children's TV. I'm also a parent of primary school kids and a school governor. Um, and I've noticed 
quite a lot of antipathy <laughs> towards what I do. Um, and you obviously embrace using TV, the right kind of TV in yeah. the classroom. Um, so my question is, are you the exception? And as, as teachers, do you have a forum for discussing how you use these tools in your classrooms? Um, yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll write things like that into schemes of work. So other teachers will, will have this when they, when they come to the scheme of work and they have the choice to use it. And most teachers, I think, now are, are, are starting to use because it's so much easier now to, to use YouTube or to, to access video clips. And just short clips, you don't have to then find the clip on a longer video. But I think, um, I think it's, there's a lot more media coming into, uh, especially science lessons, where there are things that you can't do in the classroom. Um, so, yeah, I think... But professional development and, and peer learning amongst teachers is an ongoing challenge. Yeah, well, we all, we'll ha always have meetings and share good practice within those meetings. And, but they're and usually within a to. school or within a uh, group of schools? They not. are, but a lot of schools now kind of work in community uh, schools, kind of clusters of schools, with now the, the school direct, which is um, training new teachers. And I know um, universities are working with a cluster of schools, and teachers will go out from the, some of those schools to other schools to help um, bring departments along and, and, and some academies or, or, or other schools are going to help uh, schools that are possibly failing schools so you do have a bit of collaboration between schools I think that is kind of being dispersed around schools as well. Yeah. A quick question at the front perhaps. Hi um, I'm um, uh, producing Horrible Science right. as a TV series <laughs> <laughs> um, and what advice could you give us in how to convey because I know that a lot of people have criticised horrible histories for, um, yes, it's about history, but it's, 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 it's so, sort of, the facts are so fatuous that it's almost not worth it. It's very funny, but it's not of much value uh, scientifically and, and uh, it, historically. And so with horrible science, how can we convey <coughs> uh, comedy and, and science with some fact as well as make... How do you Hire all them? four of us as consultants. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> And one thing I would say is, as a scientist, I think that we, we tend to think about science. We get you teach science as a, here's an experiment. We don't often get the stories of the people who did. I mean, people have done insane things in physiology, you know, just <laughs> to, to find out, I wonder what massive pressure of oxygen does do. I'll pop myself in a chamber and see. You know, so actually the stories behind science um, and they are, I think, interesting. And also they often reflect the fact that there's a much more diversity in science than sort of chaps in lab coats actually sometimes as an, as an end point of science it actually is fair to so I would probably say look at the stories and some of the people I mean we probably already thought of that but that would be something as a scientist I would say yeah that, that's that's interesting I think a great thing would be as well see how things have gone wrong because I think that's what kids love I mean my five-year-old spent the whole weekend freezing everything because he is obsessed with science, and it's like, what can I freeze next? And he, and he just loves it, and he wants to see what will happen. Everything in the kitchen is being frozen, all his Lego is being frozen, and the same thing happens every time it freezes. And he just <laughs> loves that, but it's a massive, massive challenge for him to find something. And I just let him take everything, and I've emptied out a drawer. And it's like, where will they go with it? And any experiments, like, how big can you do it? And that's when I go into preschools. Even at that age, they want to know what can go wrong. And that is really, the, they don't want to know what's going to go right. They want it to go wrong and they want to mess. And then you can bring it back and show them when you found the right balance. Yeah. I think I it's uh, getting the balance between, also between the, the experiments and the, 
uh, whether you're doing I don't know, dissections or anything, the, the blood and uh, the whiz bang experiments, but also having the educational aspect there uh, for it as well. Uh, but yeah, I think pushing the boundaries beyond the experiment, that's what they always want to do. They, yeah. want, to, and they want to know what Francine will do. Uh, obviously, we can't we can't do that as an experiment, but they, they want to go further than you can go in the in the in the lesson. It is always what if, what yeah, if, what, what if, and you just get to know, and you kind of get. And sometimes you think, why are they asking such ridiculous questions? But actually, when you've got kids and you're with them all the time, that is what they're always asking. What, what do you think about characterising? Uh, bacteria as um, mobsters and gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be all for that. <laughs> I'm aware that my little flashing light is about to start doing its thing, uh, which is a perfect cue, in fact, for, in fact, it has just started flashing, for this piece of script I have to read, which is please don't come forward to speak to the speakers. Catch them on the way to tea and coffee, which is available now free of charge in the showroom bar and the showroom cafe. Uh, I haven't got the name of the sponsor, sadly. Uh, but that is a sort of conversation that we could continue. Thank you very much Thanks. for your attention this morning. Thank you, Joe Peters. <laughs>